Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession today is from Proverbs 28, verse 16. A ruler who lacks understanding is a cruel oppressor, but he who hates unjust gain will prolong his days. This unjust gain is simply carrying out the sin of coveting, coveting what someone else has or their position and sinfully seeking to obtain it. The prohibition of covetousness shows us the authority that God's law has over the inner man. Hear how Paul addresses the role of the law in relationship to the sin of covetousness. Romans 7. What then should we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive in me, and I died. In the proverb, we see how the Bible addresses the realm of what we would call politics. Avoidance of this sin is necessary to anyone who aspires to a civil office. When we choose men for political office, one of the things the Bible requires is that we find men who hate covetousness. We see that in Exodus 18. It's not simply enough to avoid personal covetousness. A man is not qualified to serve a nation unless he hates this sin. When civil rulers do not hate covetousness, the alternative is cruel oppression. And as we deal with the sin of covetousness ourselves, we are reminded the antidote, we're reminded of the antidote to all sin. It's our position in Christ and the faith that we have been given in him. From 1 Corinthians 3 we read, So let no one boast in men, for all things are ours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are ours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. As we understand what, that in Christ we already own all things, covetousness should be driven from us and we are reminded to confess our sins. Please kneel where you are if you're willing. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for Jesus. God, I pray that every person here, myself included, would walk out of this service today being reminded that you are with us and that you are with us in the midst of all that we go through in our lives. And we thank you for that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, the sermon is a reminder that God is present. And the sermon title, God's Presence, might be taken more as a, what is God's gift, God's present. We're just coming off of uh, 
Christmas a week ago. And maybe it's best to say that God's greatest gift or God's greatest present to us is his presence with us. So that's hopefully what will be a reminder of our sermon this morning. My wife, actually if you want to talk about musicians, my wife is the better musician. Uh, she's an oboe player and is beyond fabulous. So I, I quit playing a number of years ago. She is amazing. You want to hear a good musician, it would be her. She was slated to go on a mission trip to Sierra Leone a couple of years ago. And she was going with her father, who had traveled to Sierra Leone in the past uh, to do missions, and particularly impoverished country in Africa. But her mission trip was canceled at the very last minute. She had all her stuff together. She'd gotten all of her shots. But um, it was canceled. And it wasn't canceled by uh, the mission agency. It was actually canceled by the United States State Department, who canceled all travel to Sierra Leone a couple years ago so that no citizen could travel to that part of the world because of the outbreak of the Ebola virus. And the Ebola virus, that disease, is a particularly unpleasant one. Even in the best of circumstances, your recovery rate might be 30 to 40 percent. And if you're in uh, circumstances where you're not receiving very good care, your chance of survival might be as low as 10 percent. And it's particularly can be very contagious. And so they canceled that trip and they weren't able to go. But the doctors that were there in Africa that were caring for those patients that had contracted that disease um, were particularly, uh, what's the word, courageous. But when they would be caring for these patients, they would be suited up to protect them from contracting the Ebola virus in the patients that they were caring for. And when they would do that, they would uh, wear very protective gear. So the first thing they would do is they would put on scrubs. The next thing they would put on would be uh, protective boots. And then they would put on a Tyvek suit that was gone all the way from the shoes over the top of your head, which was sort of impenetrable in a sense, and then they would have goggles, and they would wear respirators. And if you were to see a picture, it, it looked like they're going into a bomb area almost, the way that they're dressed. Uh, and again, we, don't, we commend them for that. We wouldn't expect them to do anything else because they're in an environment of great danger. They don't want to open themselves up to being exposed to the suffering in a sense, in a sense they are, but in another sense, they're trying to keep themselves separate from the suffering of their patients so they don't contract the disease themselves. But when Jesus takes on flesh and comes down to be among us, that's a very different thing. Jesus is here in the midst of all that causes our suffering, all the suffering that has been brought onto his good creation, the creation that he created, and at every step of the way says that it is good and that he loves it and that he cares for it, but his creation has been exposed to suffering, death, decay, disgrace. And when God comes down and is present, he doesn't have on a Tyvek suit. He doesn't have on a respirator. He isn't wearing scrubs. And he opens himself and exposes himself to all the suffering of the world that he has come to save and that he has come to care for. And we're going to see that from our text in Luke chapter 2 this morning, particularly in the way that God orchestrated the birth of Jesus. And it was orchestrated and it came out and it happened in a very, I maybe use the word odd, but a very particular way. In a way that given who God is and his majesty, you might expect something different than what actually happened. And so we're going to see three things this morning of how God is present with us in a very unique way. One is that God is present with us in our shame. God is present with us in our shame. 
And he's restoring our identity. He isn't just present with us. He isn't just there. He's restoring and reconciling us. So he's present with our shame and he's restoring our identity. The second thing that he's present in is he's present in our suffering. And he's restoring our wholeness. It's hard to find a really good English word there. Flourishing, wholeness, something like that. He's restoring us to what we were made to be. And the third thing that he's present in is he's present in our disgrace. And he's present in our disgrace, restoring our dignity. So those are the three things we're going to see from our text in Luke 2, that he's present in our shame, restoring our identity, he's present in our suffering, and he is restoring our wholeness, and he's present in our disgrace, and he is restoring our dignity. So the first is that he is present in our um, shame. In the text we read, um, that verse, it's in verse 5, it says that Mary... The betrothed of Joseph, or Mary his betrothed, was with child. Now that's about six or seven words. We've read that over and over again uh, at Christmas time. But those words have a lot of, I don't know, meaning and background to them. It basically says Mary is engaged. She's not married, but she's pregnant. That's basically what it says. Mary, the betrothed of Joseph, not married, is pregnant. Now, we know all the backstory. We know how the angel appeared to Mary. We know how the, the angel told Mary that well, what would become upon her would be from the Holy Spirit. We know how the angel appeared to Joseph and told Joseph the same, that you should not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. But do you think that everybody else they came across had angels appearing to them in dreams? You know, hey, tomorrow... Joey, you're going to meet a woman named Mary, and don't worry about it. It may look a little scandalous, but it's not really scandalous because the Holy Spirit's done this. That would not have been the case. The people that Mary and Joseph would have come across, it would have been a shameful thing to see, especially then. It is now, but especially then in the first century in a Jewish context in the ancient Near East, an engaged woman who was pregnant but not married. So Jesus was born in an environment of shame. And shame has some interesting components to it. If I was to ask people here, you know, if you were to have have had an experience of shame over the past month, week, day, 15 minutes, that'd be something where every hand would go up. Shame is a a part of the human experience in sin. You know, as we were all uh, earlier in, um, uh, in repentance at a time of confession, we all have something to say, okay, hopefully, Unless you're perfect, and then you should be leading this service and not me. So we all have something to say at a time of repentance, because there is shame as a part of our life. And shame has, there's lots of things to shame, but two things about shame, particularly when it's particularly strong, is that shame is immobilizing, and shame is uh, isolating. What I mean by immobilizing is that normally when people do things uh, of meaning, they have their emotions, their thoughts, and their actions all work together. So if I want to go to school, I have an emotion that says, I want to go to school. I have a thought that says, I think I can get that done, and I have an action to go and do it. That's how people usually make decisions and do actions in their life. When you have very powerful experiences of shame, usually that cuts off those, those things working together. So when you experience something very, very shameful, you usually can't stop thinking about whatever that is. It kind of consumes all of your thoughts. 
and you have a hard time moving forward because you're thinking about that shame over and over and over again. You also have a tendency to experience the emotion of shame continually. You just can't stop feeling it. You feel that shame and you can't get past it. And because of that, you oftentimes can't move. You can't make meaningful action because you're stuck. You're stuck in your thoughts and you're stuck in your feelings. And some people, uh, their whole life is marked by this. And they have a hard time moving meaningfully forward because they're stuck in shame. The other thing that, about shame is it's isolating. In other words, people that are experiencing shame typically don't want to be a part of a community, particularly a community like a Christian community, where part of the point is for people to know you. The last thing a person who is feeling shameful wants to do is to feel vulnerable. The last thing. The reason why is because they want to be protected. They want to protect themselves from feeling that way. They want to protect themselves from having to think about it. So they remove themselves from community and they remove, remove themselves where people might know them. Uh, one person, his name is Kurt Thompson, who's a Christian psychologist, says in a book, his, his book call, is called The Soul of Shame, basically describes shame as a personal attendant. Shame would be a voice that accompanies you in everything that you do, every action, every thought, uh, every moment of your day is accompanied by this personal attendant that has not in mind for you anything good. It just, it's, its purpose of this attendance is just to shame you and to immobilize you through verbal and through nonverbal judgment. Because one of the hallmarks of shame is condemnation. It's continual condemnation. Uh, an example might be if you wake up in the morning and one of your first thoughts might be, maybe even on a day like today, if you were uh, having fun at a, at a party last night, your, your first thought might be, you ate too much yesterday. And then your, your next thought might be, boy, I bet you, you put on a few pounds after that yesterday. I bet you you're not going to fit into whatever it is you think you were going to wear this morning. I bet you're probably not going to fit into anything that looks nice on you anymore. You need to go buy a lot of baggy clothes because that's all you're going to really look good in anymore. In fact, you need a whole new wardrobe, but you can't afford one, can you? I mean, it's just con continual, continual. And you don't have the willpower to ever stop. It's shaming you. It's continual and it's shame. Another example might be someone who's studying to go to school. Well, you know, it's not really worth it to go to class. It's not like you're actually going to pass your test because it's not like you're actually smart enough to do that. And you're just going to let people down. Just like you always let people down, like your father. You're always going to let your dad down. You've, you've let your father down. Why go even take that test? You're just going to fail. Even if you do pass, it's not like you're going to get a job. Even if you did get a job, you're going to let your boss down because all you ever do is let people down all the time. And that, for some people, that can become their identity. That's who they are. They're the ones who are ugly. They are the ones who let people down. They are the ones who are never good enough. They're the ones whose fault it always is. But Jesus is with us in our shame. His birth was in an environment of shame. His death was a shameful death. And it wasn't as if the Pharisees didn't know and that people didn't know. I mean, think about Jesus growing up. You think that, especially in a small town like Galilee, Nazareth, right, that people didn't know that Jesus was born in a circumstance where the mother wasn't married? Do you think people didn't know that? The Pharisees knew it. And John, the Pharisees point at Jesus and say, at least we weren't born as a result of sexual immorality. They were attempting to shame Jesus. But Jesus is with us in the midst of our shame. And on the cross, 
He actually takes our shame upon himself. It's placed upon him. And on the cross, as our shame is placed upon him, our shameful identities are taken on by Jesus. He gives to us his identity as a child of God. It says at the end of of John chapter 1 that those who believed and had faith in Jesus, he gave the right to be called a child of God. And his identity as a son or a daughter is given to us. Even as Jesus came out of the waters of baptism and the heavens are opened up and a dove descends upon Jesus, you hear these words. This is my beloved child. With him I am well pleased. And Jesus and God gives us the sign of baptism as a sign of our new identity. A sign that when the waters are placed upon us, Just as Jesus heard the sound saying, this is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased, those words are for us. If anyone here is living in that identity of shame, or if shame marks anyone's life here, or a life of someone that you know, if they are in Christ, that shame has been given to Jesus, and they are carrying a burden they were never meant to bear. They are meant to bear the burden of being a child of God, which Jesus says, my yoke is light and not heavy. And to hear those words afresh, you are my beloved child, with you I'm well pleased. So God, Jesus, is present in our shame. The next is he's present in our suffering. In our suffering. Again, we've read this text over and over again. We're used to reading it, but it says that he, her, Mary, she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in the swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And I see there's, uh, and, and praise God, there's a lot of, of families here that are expecting children. Uh, can you imagine being in a strange place with your young wife, uh, and she is ready to give birth, and you have no place to stay? Uh, what kind of suffering that would cause emotionally for both Mary and for Joseph? Have, and many commentators, I mean, some commentators think that it's like showing up to a hotel that says no vacancy. Many commentators say that, well, this was David's family home. This is where he was going to be registered because this is where his family was. And if Joseph was to come to the family home and to have an unwed pregnant wife, not wife, but engaged to be person, woman, and she was pregnant, that would have been shameful. They would have said, you can't stay here. This is not a place where you can be. You can be out back. You can stay down below, but you can't be here. I mean, commentators aren't sure, but they, some, some commentators think that was the case. It makes sense. So here's Mary giving birth Amongst animals, would have, you know, we have these beautiful manger scenes, probably far from what it was like. And then Jesus was placed in a feeding trough where animals were meant to eat from. This is the king of the universe. Again, this is unusual. This is weird that Jesus is born in this kind of a circumstance. He's put in the trough of an animal. And after Jesus is born, as we uh, read earlier from the Gospel of Matthew... Herod seeks to kill Jesus, and then Mary and Joseph have to flee to Egypt. And then Herod comes in and kills all the children, two and younger, in that area. Jesus was born into suffering in his own birth and in the circumstances of his birth. And now, more than any time in human history, we have the ability to see the suffering of the world like no other generation ever has. We can, and the, the older I get, I'm a young person, but the more people allow me to know them, particularly as a pastor, you see suffering at the individual level like I've never seen before because people open up. When people open up, which is a real gift, by the way, you get, you get to see suffering in people's lives, real deep pain. 
maybe not even directly with them, maybe someone in their family, but it affects them. You also, because of technology, we can in real time watch the suffering of people around the world. We can watch their faces in real time as they are calling out for help, and we are sitting here just kind of watching them. It's sort of surreal. It's a strange experience to watch people suffering and you're watching them on a television screen. It's bizarre, but you get to see suffering like we've never seen it before, which prompts the question, which oftentimes people ask, if there's this kind of suffering in the world, at our own personal level and the level of our family members, people that we know, but also around the world, is God really there? Is there really a God out there? And two, if there is, does he really care? Because if this God who apparently he's there, if he's really there, if, he's, if he cares, he doesn't seem to be showing it. Because if he really cared and he was powerful, he could put a stop to suffering at my own level. He could also put a stop to the suffering of the levels of the suffering city around the world. And what I said this, this morning as we're looking at this text, if there was no Jesus, if there was no New Testament, the answer to that question in my mind, it would be a perpetual question mark. You say, I think God's there. I think he cares. I'm pretty sure he's there. I'm pretty sure he cares. I think we can say pretty, pretty profoundly that he's there. But does he care? I mean, you think, well, I think he does. But when Jesus comes, that gives the, the definitive answer, is God there and does God care? You can't, in the person of Jesus, you know God is there. And in the person of Jesus, you know God cares. Which prompts another question, well, if he cares, why doesn't he stop it? Why does he allow it to continue? And I actually don't know the answer to that. But I do know this, that God in Jesus Christ cares enough about you and cares enough about me and cares enough about the suffering of the world that he doesn't stay aloof from it. He doesn't distance himself from it. But he comes close and he actually takes that suffering upon himself. And again, on the cross, we see this profound sense where the suffering of the world is placed upon Jesus, where he doesn't stay off, he isn't putting on the suit, he doesn't have on the respirator. He puts that suffering on himself. He's the doctor that cares for the Ebola patient with no protection. He opens himself off, and it, in some, if you can imagine, it's almost like he takes the virus away from the person and says, I'll suffer that virus so that you don't have to. And that's exactly what Jesus does on the cross. Which is, and even as, after this... Uh, Later in the service, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the suffering of Jesus, which is sort of weird. You're celebrating the suffering of God. Because the suffering of God is what results in our being restored to our wholeness, our flourishing. That everything that God made us to be is brought to newness, new creation, as his suffering is meted out to us. We actually break Jesus' body, and we hand it out. But as a result of that, we are healed. Just as Jesus was to take that Ebola virus onto himself, he heals the person as he himself suffers. So Jesus is present in our suffering. He's present in our shame, and he's present in our suffering, and he's present in our suffering, restoring our wholeness. And he gives us that sign. Just in the first, in, a, in a, restoring our identity, he gives us the sign of baptism. When he, when he restores, he's present in our suffering, he gives us a sign that that's true. And he gives us the sign of the Lord's Supper. So lastly, he is present in our disgrace. 
Now, disgrace kind of sounds a lot like shame, like that might be the same kind of idea, but that's not what I'm uh, really meaning there. I'm thinking more of disgrace uh, in, in terms of uh, exclusion. Somebody who is on the outside, you don't really fit in, you're, you're sort of a disgrace, you're, you're separate, you're not good enough, you don't wear the right kind of clothing, you don't sound this right, you don't have the right kind of intelligence, you don't have the right kind of upbringing, you don't have the right you know, skin color or something. You're separate, you're disgraced. And it says in uh, verse 8, again, a passage that we've read a hundred times. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the flock, keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. We kind of have a good idea of what, you know, we, we, in our mind, we think shepherds are... Um, kind of good, good people, good guys. I don't know. I just, I, at least in my mind, when I think about the Bible, the word shepherd seems to mean something good. Uh, it says in Psalm 23 that the Lord is my shepherd. And, and over and over again in the Old Testament, kings are called shepherds. David was a shepherd. But we forget and we don't realize or don't remember that in the first century when Jesus was born, shepherds were not very highly thought of. They were not sort of at the top of the social ladder. They were not at the middle of the social ladder. They were at the bottom of the social ladder. Socially, a shepherd would have been on the same social place as a tax collector or a dung sweeper. In the Mishnah, the Mishnah is the moral law uh, recorded in the old, uh, for Jews from the Old Testament, the oral law that they followed. The Mishnah says that shepherds are, quote, incompetent, and, quote, if a shepherd should fall into a pit, one should not feel obligated to pull them out. Uh, one rabbi, in the, this is the first century, one rabbi in the first century, when Jesus was born, says this. He says, in view of the despicable nature of shepherds, how can one explain why God was called my shepherd in Psalm 23? In other words, shepherds are such losers how is it that God could ever be called a shepherd? That doesn't make any sense to us. So to get a picture of what shepherds were like in the first century, these were not well thought of people. Yet Jesus and his birth is not announced to people of influence. They are not announced to rich intellectuals. His birth is not, uh, not announced to uh, prominent religious leaders. His birth is not announced to kings or princes or anybody of a high, like even merchants. I mean, these people were the lowest of the low. And yet God appears to the disgraced. Because God is a God of the lowly. God, I mean, even as I was struck, even as we were singing this morning, and I marked it. Um... We were singing, for with all my heart, my thanks I'll bring. The words are, oh, i got to find it, I don't want to lose it. Oh, yeah, right here. He says, although Jehovah is most high, on lowly ones he bends his eye. But those that are proud and haughty are, he knoweth only from afar. Jesus God, the God that we worship, is the God of the lowly. The God that we worship is the God of the disgraced and the outcast. Jesus himself, his whole life, was an outcast. He was never one of the inside people. He was always excluded. His death was one of exclusion. He died alone. He, was, he, he died betrayed. He was never accepted. And 
ourselves, as we follow Jesus, we're called to be like Jesus. We in the world, we're in the world, but we're not of it. We are also outsiders in this world, like Jesus was. If at, you know, when you're in the world, if you start to feel like you really belong, like the way that the world works really resonates with you, you should really, that should be a question mark on your spiritual life. Now, we are, in, we are out there to love the world and to be the light of Christ for the world, but we are not to be of it, which is why in 1 John, it says, if, if the love of the world is in you, the love of the Father is not. So Jesus was an outcast, and Jesus is the lowly. And just as he gave us a sign of our new identity in baptism, and he gives us a sign of our wholeness in the Lord's Supper, he also gives us a sign as he's restoring. If, if we're outcasts, he restores our dignity And he gives us a sign of that as well. And the sign that God gives us of our restored dignity is the body of Christ, the church. The church is the place. This is the place where it's not about your level of income that makes you better than anyone else. It's not that you have the right kind of clothing on that makes you better than anyone else. It's not about your vocational success, that you're a CEO or that you work in the mailroom. Everyone here is one in Christ Jesus. It's not about being a male or a female. Everyone in the church is one in Christ Jesus. It's not about being master or slave. Everyone in the church is one in Christ Jesus because our dignity has been restored from what has been taken from us in our disgrace in the world because God is there present in our shame and our suffering and our disgrace. Two quick stories and then I'll close. They're quick. One, um, has Pastor Hunt preached here yet from Cornerstone? Art Hunt? No? Yes? He's a good man. If you haven't met Art, if he has been here, you, you, you enjoyed him. Uh, I was talking with him this last week. He told a story about uh, a person that he worked with at Ward Church, which is, uh, I think, in Livonia, in the 80s or 90s. Now, in the 80s and 90s is when the AIDS virus was just kind of coming on the scene. People um, didn't know a lot about it. It, it was sort of... Uh, a lot of mystery around AIDS and you know, how is it spread. They knew it was dangerous, but they didn't know a lot. Now we know a lot more about it now, but back in the 80s and 90s, they didn't. Now, Dr. Hunt, or Art, uh, was, had a friend whose brother was diagnosed with AIDS. And so when he was checked into a hospital, he had to fill out uh, an admission form. And, and a part of the admission form, at least then, maybe now too, is your religious affiliation. And because uh, Dr. Hunt's friend who had AIDS was raised Catholic, and he wasn't really a practicing Catholic, but was kind of culturally so, he clicked that box when he was admitted into the hospital. And so he was visited by a priest. And so when the priest came to visit, he must have looked at what the diagnosis was on some sheet somewhere, because he refused to enter the room. So the priest came up, and to say this, he came up and he stopped at the entrance of the door. And he conversed with the person who had diagnosed, but he wouldn't enter and then he wanted to pray, so he put, a, he put his hand there to pray a blessing. But again, he refused to enter the room because this disease was, was a source of shame. This disease was a source of suffering. And this disease was a source of exclusion and disgrace. So that the priest, he prayed for him, but he wouldn't come close. But there was another man, our second story. This man had a disease that caused him shame, disease that caused him suffering, and a disease that caused him disgrace as well. In fact, this person and his disease, he couldn't come close to any human person. And anybody that came close to him, he had to tell them to get away. Get away from me. You can't be near me. 
Now this person with this disease, he heard about a healer that was coming through town. His name was Jesus. And his disease was leprosy. And when Jesus was coming through town, this man got in the way of Jesus. That's something we should all be doing regularly, by the way, is getting in Jesus' way and saying, stop, stop Jesus. And this man does that. And he gets in Jesus' way and he says this. He says, Master, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And you wonder, you know, you wish we had movie cameras back then to see the facial expression that Jesus had. We just have to guess. But we do know this, that this man who had not experienced human touch for who knows how long, that Jesus didn't step back, he didn't leave the room and do a blessing from a distance, he didn't go, wait, i got to put on my protective suit, uh, you obviously have a disease, I need to go get my gloves and my antibacterial soap, just chill out for a second. Jesus extends his hand right then and there, and he physically touches the man. This man that was untouchable, Jesus touches. He touches this man in the midst of his shame. He touches this man in the midst of his suffering. And he touches this man in the midst of disgrace. And he says, I am willing. Be healed. And that is a word for every person here. And that's a word for me and all of our families. That in the midst of our shame, in the midst of our suffering, and in the midst of our disgrace, we have a Savior who was near to us. And he is not apart from us. He doesn't start, stop at the doorway to our room because we're too dirty for him to come near. He is close, as close as a whisper in an ear. And his hand is always outstretched to every one of us, always saying, I am willing, be clean. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness in Christ to us. We thank you that you are near to us and that you are always present with us. We are never alone. I pray for anyone here that has had an experience or is experiencing shame, that they might have that personal attendant that's following them around, always condemning them at every step. God, I pray that you would put an end to that voice, that you would take that as you did 2,000 years ago, that identity of shame upon yourself and that you would put upon them your identity as a child of God. I pray for people who are suffering, that they would know that there is a hope that can never be taken away and that we don't know why you allow suffering to continue, but we know this, that you have put it to death on the cross and that you are here and that you care for us. And I pray for people that are have a feeling of disgrace, maybe in their job, or maybe they don't feel like they really belong. God, I pray that you would remind them that you are a God of the disgraced, and that you are a God of the lowly, and that you will raise us up. And we thank you in the name of Jesus, we pray. The start of the new year is traditionally a celebratory occasion but it also can be a time of anxiety. What really lies ahead of us this year? Obviously we cannot fully know, and this lack of future insight can lead to fear. Fear of changes or even hardships that may be in store for us in 2017. Such distress of the future is possible every day of the year. We cannot know what tomorrow will bring, but is often heavier and more palpable at New Year's time. 
So brothers and sisters, it is fitting then that we begin this new year with the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Because it is here we are reminded of one thing that cannot change. One thing that serves as an anchor in the hardest of times. One thing that we can know with certainty in times of uncertainty. That Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, is with us. Isaiah 58.11 says, The Lord will guide you continually. And Jesus at his ascension said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As we look down the uncertain path of 2017, and as we partake of this bread and wine, let us remember these words. He will be with us always. He is our great shepherd, and his guidance of us is perpetual in all circumstances. There is nothing to fear, dear saints. Your God is with you. He has bled and died for you so that you are his, and he lives to intercede for you so that you can never be taken from him. Amen. Christ's body broken for us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.